I will come on back and uh, you're going to open up to the book of Esther. And I'm going to try and orient you here. I'm going to try and orient you here with some dates. Okay, so you might want to jot these down. I want to tell you where we are in the Bible. Do you know there was a guy named Saul? <laughs> he was a king in the Old Testament. You guys know Saul, right? He was, listen to this, from 1050 to 1010 BC. Okay, that's when he reigned. And then you know a guy named David, right? David? He he reigned from about 1010 to 970 BC, 1010 to 970. And then his son Solomon reigned from about 970 to 931. And guess what happened? This you need to know. If you're not writing anything down, you probably want to write this down. Because if you know these dates, you're going to know the Old Testament. And I want you to know the Old Testament uh, really well. In 931 BC, do you know this? The kingdom of Israel split. And there was these two guys, Je, uh, or Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and they split. Ten tribes went to the north, and it was called Israel. Two tribes went to the south, and it was called Judah. And then there are these books. I bet you've heard of them. They're called First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And those books detail both the northern kings and the southern kings, they just, boom, they just spit it out, just one right after the other. They tell you about uh, these kings. And then you're going to need this date. Know this date. 722 BC is when Assyria, Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, Assyria comes down into the northern kingdom and takes away the northern tribes. That's 722 BC. Okay? Now, the reason I'm telling you that is, <laughs> I'm trying to just orient you here in the Bible. And in 586 B.C., remember this? This is the most important date of the Old Testament in my humble yet accurate opinion. No, it just that's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. 586 B.C. is the time, it was the third wave of Babylon coming into the southern kingdom, Judah, and delivering the death blow there to Jerusalem and taking captives captive back to Babylon. Now, again, remember that went in three waves. 586 was the third wave. So Daniel, Daniel, you know Daniel? He had already been taken out and he was in Babylon. And so we, Babylon is, is, is referred to as the exilic or exile period. But what's funny is, even though the Jews remained in Babylon, remember that the Persians came and toppled them? And you can read about that in Daniel chapter 5. And so even though the Jews were still living in Babylon, that Babylon place was now Persia because Persia took it over. Now, at the time of Esther, Persia is the great... Is there somebody back there on the... Yeah, Gabe. At the time of Persia, or time of Esther, oh, I don't know if we can do it. We didn't plan ahead too well. Well, somebody hit the button. Anybody got the button? 
We'll hit the button and we'll do it in a minute. I'm going to show you the map of Persia, the extent of the Persian Empire at the time of Esther, because it's startling. They basically uh, were, or Persia was basically the uh, keeper or the uh, dominating factor, the dominating uh, power of the entire ancient world. And uh, they were a little bit different than the Babylonians, even though they were cruel and rough. They would basically let you live intact and do your stuff in your country as long as you didn't upset them too much. Maybe here in a minute. Oh, well, forget it. It's okay. Forget it. I'll give you the, the, uh, uh, the map later. I could pass it out to you. Uh, so so per Persia, that's where we are, and it has an amazing, unbelievable empire. It's huge. But 586 B.C. is the time that you need to know. Babylonians come in. They take away the southern um, exiles of, of Judah. And then remember, over the last several weeks, here we go, we're getting into our part of the Bible where we are now. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying basically three different waves of Jews who returned from Babylon or Persia back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And the first wave was in 538 to 536, depending on who you read, BC, under a guy named Zerubbabel. Remember that? That's in chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. Now look, look with me. Just go over to Ezra for a minute. Ezra was a scribe. You remember this. Go, go to chapter 6. Actually, yeah, at the end of chapter 6. If you're in Ezra at the end of chapter 6, I don't know if you remember this, but I told you this. You're hot, so am I. Somebody open the windows or turn it up higher or something. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> okay, after chapter 6, watch this. If you have a Bible take your, and your pen, listen, in between chapter 6 and chapter 7, guess what happens right there? You don't want to miss this. In between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra, guess what happens? The book of Esther. Now, some people believe Esther came at the end of uh, Ezra, but most people believe that right there, in there, look, and I want you to see something. It's before Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. Esther takes place back in Babylon. Are you catching that? Everybody tracking with me here? Am I confusing you? And the reason I want you to know that is the first point of everything we're learning here about Esther, check this out, is, is you know the story. The exiles go up there into Babylon and uh, if you can't get it, just forget it. It's okay. It's okay. Thank you for trying. I appreciate it. You guys, yeah, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, but the point of this is, look at this. <laughs> Here we have the people who are up in Babylon, and the Bible says they got real comfortable. And by the way, the book of Jeremiah tells the exiles to do good, to be good and responsible citizens in the land in which they've been exiled too. So sometimes pastors are too hard on these folks because they were doing kind of what they were set, said to do, but, but then a decree was given in 538 BC that they could come back to their homeland, and most of them said, no, we don't want to. You know this, right? 
So somewhere between 45 and 50,000 in the first wave come back, but, but many of them say they don't want to. And what's touching about the book of Esther before we begin the study of it, look at this, is God was not only taking care of the people who decided that they wanted to come back to Jerusalem, the place where the temple was going to be rebuilt, where the, uh, uh, where the Shekinah glory of God was going to reside in the temple. Listen, listen. He also said, I want to take care of my people who, whether they got comfortable or whatever, decided they didn't even want to come back. He still took care of them. That's touching. And Ezra takes place right in there. Now, just, just so you know, first wave, four, or 538 B.C., came back under Zerubbabel. Then Esther happens. Then in the, second chap, or in the second wave, Ezra comes back in 458 B.C., 458 B.C., and then there was a third wave, 445 B.C., under Nehemiah. Everybody track it with me? In other words, Esther happened about, Esther happens uh, about uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 years after the temple is built, and listen, listen, and pr- uh, about 40 years prior to the time that Nehemiah finished the walls. Are you catching that? Okay, because sometimes when I re- uh, pre- previously had read the book of Esther, it's like I started to read it and then like, y- you know, your orientation just went haywire and I had no idea where we were. And I want you to know that that is where we are. Esther falls in there. Okay, so let's turn to it for a minute. And the number one thing that you and I, we need to do if we're going to understand the book of Esther, the number one thing that we need to do is we got to figure out who the players are. If you figure out who the players are, the people the, the, uh, that are in this story, boy, you're going to be way ahead and it's going to be a blessing for you. So here's what we're going to do. Look, watch this. We'll read a little bit, and then we're going to talk about some of the players. And then we're going to take a look at one of the attributes of God that's rarely looked at. It's talked about a lot, but rarely looked at. But we want to look at it, and that's called the providence of God. You see, I read to you Romans 15, chapter 4, that says... These things are written patiently to give you folks and me and us as we search the scriptures hope. Don't we want hope? And yet, when you read Esther, there's no mention of God. No mention of how to do church. No mention of prayer. Can you believe that? No mention of prayer. Uh, No real mention. Oh, good. That's good. We could put that up there. I'm not kidding. Uh, put that up there. No mention of faith. Nothing. It's, it's a story that you would see, like, uh, what's that guy's name? Ridley Scott. He's a director. Ridley Scott. He did uh, uh, Gladiator. There we go. Oh, gee whiz. That's my favorite movie, and I can't remember the name of it. They did Gladiator. Gladiator. But this book is Shakespearean. Shakespearean. It's got intrigue and mystery and romance and torture. I mean, this would sell in Hollywood, folks, 
if they would do it, right? And uh, that's this book, and it's got it everywhere. And yet, there's this one thing, folks. God, I'm going to say it this way, although it's not really so, is in the shadows working out all of the decisions that these people are making for the good of his people. That's what's happening in the book of Esther. And so read this with me in verse, verse 1, chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, I can't say that very well, uh, Ahasuerus, if that's how you say it, or if you say it a different way, well, God bless you. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about who this guy is. He's the king. He's a Persian king. He has a Persian name that I can't pronounce, Shearshan. In Hebrew, that becomes Ahasuerus, but in Greek, guess what that becomes? Xerxes. You've heard of Xerxes, right? This particular king, this Persian king, had a father, you should know this, named Darius, and his grandfather, here's the connection, you ready for the connection, is Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is the one who decreed that they could come back. Cyrus is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. Everybody tracking? This Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, however you say it, ruled the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 BC. So that's where we are. That's who this is. He's the king, the emperor of Persia. Uh, and he had, and he reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Ha! We got it. That's good. Thanks, you guys. And uh, look how big it is. Everything in green, everything is gr in green is, um, is, is their um, empire. And look right there where it says Susa. That's where we're going to, much of this book is going to take place in Susa, right? But they basically had the entire ancient world. Okay, so that is Persia. Thanks for doing that on short notice. Uh, in those days, verse 2, when Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of the reign, he made a feast for all his servants. Now look, you're going to I think, I think there's nine total feasts in this book. Very interesting. Hold on to that. Here, what he does is in the third year of his reign, he makes a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the province are come before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days. Now, what was the reason he was having this feast? Well, there's a backstory to this, and this is secular history, but it's real history. There's a historian named Herodotus. He's a Greek, and he was around from 485 to 425, and he wrote a, a, a piece, a, a book, or whatever you want to call it, scrolls called History. He states that this guy, this king, brought these people together because they were planning a great, massive attack against Greece. And the reason he was uh, planning a massive attack against Greece, because Greece had gotten one over on his father, Darius. He'd won, they'd won a battle. They didn't do so well in conquering the known world, but they won some battle, and this stuck in this guy's craw, Xerxes. And so he was coming to fight this battle. By the way, interestingly enough, he, 
in his initial surge of this battle that he, uh, that he, uh, uh, that he started, uh, he did have some success, but ultimately this massive army that some people uh, uh, number at somewhere between two and five million men were defeated and decimated. But that's neither here nor there because it's not focusing on the battle. What it's doing is just setting us up to meet the right players in this book. And what happens was he brings all of these nobles, all of these people together, and what he was doing was he was showing them how rich and powerful he was, and guess what else he was doing? He was getting these people on his side, making sure they were firmly entrenched with him so they could go do battle. So here's what he does. And when these days, or he, he, he had this uh, party, this gathering, this feast for 180 days. But then when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. There's the second feast. And who did he make this for? All the people who were present in Shushan. Okay, that's okay. He put it up. But the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So another seven-day feast. And there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen purple and silver rods, marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and a white and black marble. Just trying to tell you how rich this guy was and how opulent the uh, kingdom was and the empire was. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance. The wine is flowing. According to the generosity of the king, he wanted to make sure they knew he was generous. In accordance with the law, this is interesting, the drinking was not, not compulsory at this feast. In other words, you didn't have to drink at this feast, which meant at the other feasts, you were expected to just keep pounding the alcohol. This one, he said, now nah, you, can, you can lay off of that. Why? I don't know, but that's the way he did it. For the king had ordered, and I guess what you could see here, though, is, uh, let me retract that statement. I, I kind of get what what what's happening here. The Lord is trying to show us, I think, that you can't legislate the hearts of people. Now, before you throw me out and say you're not a good American and all that sort of thing. Should we be good and responsible citizens and vote for people? Yes. Uh, the, the government is a, uh, uh, you know, an extent, the Lord has put government there to rule uh, people who are, um, you know, civilly disobedient and those sorts of things. And it's an instrument that God has put in place. But here, what I think the writer is showing us is that you if you attempt to lord things over people, it ain't going to work. <laughs> now, the Bible tells us, we just went through this scripture uh, a couple weeks ago. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we're not to lord it over uh, people when we're ministering to them, right? We're not to be that way. What, what, what people respond to is a real dynamic relationship with the Lord, but that's sort of a li little rabbit trail, but it's not really, because I think why this is in here is he's telling them when they can drink and when they can't. Like the government tries to tell you when you can do this and when you can't do that, right? Right? And that should be a real wake-up call to the church. Yes, we want good and godly leaders with wise people in office, but listen, let's pour out our lives 
to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people's hearts will be really changed in the only way that it can be, through a dynamic relationship with him. Okay, so here, in accordance with the law, verse 8, the drinking wasn't compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of this household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Now here you go, you have this queen, the queen that's married to Xerxes. Her name's Vashti. She also made a feast, feast number three, for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was married with wine, apparently, he wasn't under any compulsion to drink, but he did it for seven days. He wasn't feeling any pain. Which, by the way, just brings me to another point. Has really kind of... Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the story, but, you know, I get it. There's a big debate in the Christian church. We have a lot of churches and pastors put right up on Instagram partying, not partying, you know, let's be fair, having drinks and that sort of thing and saying there's nothing wrong with it. And that might be true. I'm not going to debate you, although I have my ideas about this. But the Bible says don't be drunk with wine. Be being filled with the Spirit. And I got to tell you, I'm looking out here and I know I've drank more alcohol than most of you. And I can tell you one thing, when I had one drink of wine or one glass of wine, I felt it. Even in the days when I had a big tolerance. Is it big tolerance? Anyway, whatever it is. Even in the days when I had a high tolerance, there you go. (laughs) I knew after one uh, glass of wine, I could feel it. So be careful. Here's why I'm saying we're not to be under the influence of anything, whatever that is. Wine, lust, money, idols, anything, you know, that just overpowers our lives. And I get it, people have freedom to do certain things, but I gotta tell you, when you sit in this seat and you see what alcohol does to people and to families, all I can say is, pray about it and be very careful. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Because what happens here on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these eunuchs, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abgatha, or Abag, whatever, Zathar and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in their, the presence of King Hesarius. Obviously, they were eunuchs so they could be trusted with the ladies that the king, Xerxes, is going to bring and to, um, uh, you know, uh, He's going to bring into his uh, kingdom or into his palace. So to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown, I underlined that because there's a big debate amongst the scholars. See, some people believe what King uh, Xerxes asked his wife to do was just wear a crown, if you get what I mean. Nothing else. Some people believe that. Some people believe, yes, or maybe that isn't what, exactly what he was asking, but surely the implication was he wanted to show her beauty off even to the point of maybe even disrobing when she got there. This was really weird and strange, and here's what he wanted her to do. He says he wanted to bring her royal crown into order, order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for which uh, she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned 
with him. See that mix of uh, alcohol and anger and things going awry? It's just such a toxic mix. So be careful. Uh, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. King is furious. See what's happening here. Listen, in the ancient times, think about what's happening. Queen Vashti and King Xerxes. This is ancient now. This is ancient. Man, women is saying to a man, I ain't doing what you say. Wife is saying to a husband, I'm not going to do what you say. And a subject is saying to a king, all one and in the same here, I'm not going to do what you say. And he's used to everybody else saying, I'll do whatever you say. And if not, <laughs> right? So this is like a triple whammy here. So the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner told, toward all who know law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access uh, to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? Now here's where we're going to take a pause. <laughs> because I want you to see something. In this book, it's much different than Daniel. You're going to see it here in a minute. You're going to see it in the, the next chapter. Esther does some of the most opposite things that Daniel did. For instance, when Daniel was presented in the kingdom of Babylon with eating the food of the administration, do you remember what he did? He said, no, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm going to do eat the stuff that, you know, godly stuff and all. You remember that? Okay. The queen here, Esther, is going to eat the food. Mordecai, Esther, and all of them, up until a certain point, hide the fact that they're Jewish. Daniel never hid the fact that he and his buddies were Jewish. They made a stand, right? Uh, there's some question here because uh, here in a minute, Mordecai is asked to bow down to one of the prime minister of the king, right? Um, and, and so finally, he stands up over in chapter 3, sort of. But what I'm trying to tell you is there's a different approach here in Esther and Daniel. Daniel made it very clear early on that he was a follower of God. Esther and Mordecai, and some, they, they kept it on the down low. So who was right? And what I want to show you is right here in the last verse that we read, we start seeing the providence of God. You say, what? What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she didn't obey the command of King Xerxes or Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? What in the world are you talking about? Well, let me give you a couple definitions of providence. We're going to look at the providence of God tonight, one of the attributes of God. You know, we say it, we talk about it, we uh, throw that uh, uh, word around, but no one ever explains it to us. That was one of the most frustrating things as a Christian when I first became a Christian. It was like you folks knew some language that I didn't know, and you would talk to in, in it, and I was like on the outside looking in. 
So I don't want that to happen to us. So here we go. Here, good old J. Vernon McGee. Don't you love his accent, man? It's so great. I can't believe that Louisiana accent ministered right there in the heart of Los Angeles all those years. But man, the Lord can do it. So amazing. He says this about the providence of God. It simply means that God will provide. And theologically, providence is the direction, listen to this, is the direction God gives to everything animate and inanimate, good and evil. It's the direction God gives to everything. Practically, providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. Did you catch that? The hand of God in the glove of history, and that glove will never move until God moves it. God's at the steering wheel of this universe, and providence means that God's, listen, this is the part I want you to get. Providence means that God is behind the scenes, shifting and directing all the things that need to be shifted and directed. And it's the way God coaches the runner on second base. Isn't that a funny way of saying it? It's the way God leads those who won't be led. As recorded in the book of Esther, the entire Jewish nation would have been slain had it not been for the providence of God. God stands in the shadows, keeping watches over his own. Now, just bear with me for a minute. Plug in here. Here's a weird little verse, and I just told you that's the providence of God. And what what am I talking about? This fight between a king and a queen, where the queen says, I ain't doing it. I'm not going to do it. And that starts something that God's behind, and that's what I'm trying to say to you. That's the providence of God right there. He's working behind the scenes, taking the things that people do, and he's working it out for his glory. Listen to some other definitions of providence, because Anyway, listen to this. William Grand MacDonald says, God's activity throughout history in providing for the needs of human beings, especially those who follow in him in faith. Providence occurs because God cares about the universe and everyone in it. Ray Pritchard says, God's gracious oversight of the universe is his providence. Now hang with me for a minute. And he says, God's words, every one of those words in that definition is important. God's gracious oversight of the universe. His providence is one aspect of grace. Oversight means he directs the course of affairs. The word universe tells us that God not only knows the big picture, he also concerns himself with the tiniest details. And here are five statements that uphold or unfold the meaning of providence. He upholds all things. He governs all events. He directs everything to its appointed end. He does this all the time and in every circumstance, and he always does it for his own glory. And if you believe and understand and think about the providence of God and believe it, you'll know this, that God cares about small details. Nothing escapes his notice. I remember one time when I first became a Christian, we were debating whether God cares about whether you get a parking spot or not. You know, for me, he probably blocks the parking spot because my patience is not very high. But anyway, we were debating that. And here, the providence of God says he's in every detail. And he keeps tracks of the stars, the rivers. Second, he uses everything and wastes nothing. 
There are no accidents, only incidents. How about this third? And here, this is important. This is really important. I wonder if we really believe this in God's providence. You ready for this? God's ultimate purpose in all of this, in his providence, is to shape children, us, into the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29, and he often uses difficult moments and human tragedies to accomplish that, uh, uh, that purpose. The doctrine of God is really a combination of sovereignty and uh, knowing that he's in charge even beforehand and wisdom that he makes no mistakes and his goodness that he has our best interest at heart. And Kent Hughes says this, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a lot of definitions, but it's important that we grab hold of providence. It's what I counsel people about a lot. Here it is. Sweet doctrine of God's providence is this, the sweet doctrine. Listen to this. God's uh, sovereignty works in and through the everyday, everyday, non-miraculous events of life to effect God's will. It's great beyond our imaginings because he maintains all life. He involves himself in all events, and he directs all things to their appointed end while rarely interrupting the natural order of life, which makes life all a miracle. I want to read you a couple things. Look, do you ever thought of these verses as talking about the providence of God? Here you go. You're going to know them all. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil. Oh, he must have the message. No, I'm kidding. To give you a future and a hope. It's a joke if you have the message, all right? It's a joke. Paul gave, it to, uh, Paul gave uh, uh, us some providence when he said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When you quote that verse and you think that's happening in your life, guess what you're counting on? The providence of God. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. So I've told you that. And so I want you to see something. Here you got what many in the Christian world think. Oh, man, Daniel. What a guy. I want, all my, I want me to be like Daniel, and I want all my kids to be like Daniel. And sometimes I'm not like Daniel, and my kids aren't either. We sometimes can be more like Esther and Mordecai, right? I hear some people say, oh, I had this amazing opportunity on Friday at work, and I blew it. The door was wide open, and I, and you know, they start killing themselves because they're concerned about the other people. Well, I got news for us folks. God will use us, but he still will get his purposes done. And that's the point of Esther. That's the point of Esther. When we are faithless, and I'm not saying Esther and Mordecai were faithless, but when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Lord, I, I have this unbelief. Help me with it. See, when we have a healthy view of what providence is, we can understand, listen to this one, when we think absolutely nothing is going on, there's no prayer, there's no faith, there's no mention of God, there's no this, there's no that, God is still in the shadows directing it all. When you feel like he's the farthest away from you, that is when 
He's there. He's always there. I love, don't you, Psalm 22. You love this, written all those years before Christ is crucified, and the first line, written by David, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's writing it because he feels forsaken. Little does he know the Holy Spirit is moving his pen to ink the words that Jesus Christ will say on the cross. The time he feels that the Lord is the farthest, he's actually the closest, and using him for eternity. Isn't that beautiful? That's Esther. Look at this. What sh- I, so, so now that I've gone through that whole thing, see, here's what I want you to do. I want you, see, when I read this sometimes, here's some of the things I say. Man, that was a stupid move. How could you do that? You're drinking and bringing your wife out in front of everybody. You, come on. And that is bad. No one's saying it's not. But God still used it. And here he says, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she didn't obey the command of this king brought to her by the eunuchs. There is the providence of God in the choices that these two people are making. God is going to use it to set up a different queen to save his people. Amazing. Look at this. And Memekun answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king. Look at this. Some smart, elec, wise man says, oh, wow, can feel the king's fury and anger at his wife, knows that the king is a little tipsy, says, here's what we'll do. We'll push him over the edge. We'll, we'll goad him. So he says, he's not only wronged the king, but also the princes and also the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she didn't come. Wow. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the king. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Look at this providence of God. It's just pouring out of these pages, and it never even mentions him. Well, when the king's decree, verse 20, which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Now, we could go and do a whole thing, folks, couldn't we? We could do a whole thing on how husbands and wives should treat each other. Yes, the Bible says that wives are submit to their husbands, but boy, before you even get there, remember that the husbands and wives are to submit to each other, the Bible tells us in Ephesians, in the same passage, uh, in the fear of the Lord, because, because we're respecting the Lord, and so we're going to submit to one another, and then the, the, the wife submits to the husband as the spiritual leader, but, but before that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up, wow, what does the Bible tell the man that he should be doing? Well, he should lay down his wife, life for his wife. 
laying down his life and his desires and his thoughts so that all the things that make her a whole person, he thinks of first and acts upon that so that she will be blessed in her life. How would you like to follow a guy like that? Yes. So this isn't a commentary on marriage. This is just showing us that God can take even the wrong choices of pagans and turn it around for his good and glory. Well, look here in verse 21. And the reply pleased the king. I can't talk tonight or maybe any night, but anyway. Pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word, uh, uh, according to the word of Memekun. Then he sent letters to all the king's providence, or provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the uh, language of his own people. Wow. Well, you, you can see so many things here. Uh, there's so many levels to the book of Esther uh, that we uh, could go on and on and on. You could even consider what Christ would do for his bride. It's a compare and contrast contrast between this kingdom, the kingdoms of the world who order people around, including their wives, and the kingdom of Christ who would die for his bride, even when she was undeserving of his love, he still would pursue and love and lay down his life. And see, when love is rooted in that kind of love, we don't lord anything over people. People then just respond back in that way because there's been real, true love shown them. They come back to it. And that's our relationship with Christ. Why do we do the things that Christ asks us out of a love relationship? It is only our reasonable service, folks. I love that verse. Don't you love that verse? When you start to consider all the things that Christ has done for me or for you or for us, it's only our reasonable service that we would just lay our lives back to him. That's the only thing we could do. It's the only reasonable thing. We'll just give you everything. And that's how people change. Not by legislating it. Not by laying it down. Well, we go on, don't we? Esther now becomes the queen. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti what she had done. Now see what happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Do you know this? There's about a four-year gap where he goes and attacks Greece. He goes and attacks Greece, and now he comes back, and that's why it says he remembered Vashti. So he does this after these things, when the wrath of King Azarius subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be, virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the providence of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody, custody of Haggai, or however you say it, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them and then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the queen, King, and he did so, my goodness, having a tough day. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And this is interesting. Mordecai, there's a uh, Babylonian god named Marduk. And some people, even though this is a Jewish name, 
recognizes uh, that Mordecai, maybe, you know, see that, that melding that starts to happen when you're in the camp of the enemy? Well, anyway, he's obviously a Jew because uh, they give his, uh, uh, his genealogy here, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah. Now that happens, look at this, you can write it down, in 2 Kings 24, 14, and 15. That happened in about 597 BC. That's that kind of second wave of people who go out of Babylon. But Mordecai, more importantly, is this, and you need to know this. If you've been, if you're falling asleep now, wake up on this one. He's a Benjamite. And who's the most famous Benjamite? Saul, right? Saul is the most famous Benjamite. So he is a descendant of Saul or the Benjamites. And his relative had been, Kish had been carried away and was a captive with, with Jeconiah king. So this Mordecai, even though he has that Jewish name, it's interesting, he has a name that is kind of similar to a Babylonian god, uh, not saying he wasn't faithful or anything like that. It's just interesting that that's what the name ended up. And he's lived his life, you see, up there. That's where he's lived. Okay. And uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up this girl named Hadassah. That means myrtle tree. I, always, I think it's funny that we use the Persian name, but oh well. And her name is Esther. And that means like shining star. But some people think that name means hidden star, which is kind of fascinating. Hidden up in Babylon. Anyway, Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, their cousins, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, and I don't mean to be too graphic here, but the phrase in the Hebrew there is that she had a good form and she was pretty to look at. So she was very pretty. And when her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him. Who? Pleased who? Pleased that eunuch. She did what she was told. She, she uh, uh, went along with the game. She played the game. She dressed up. She looked nice and all those sorts of things. And this pleased this eunuch. Now see, that's interesting. If you compared that against Daniel, you might think if Daniel was in some sort of similar situation, what do you think Daniel would do? I'm Jewish and I need to do this. Now, there's another thing that you probably need to know. Did Mordecai, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out here. Did Mordecai and Esther adhere to all the dietary laws? that they were still under compulsion as a Jew to hold? Did they, you'll see in a minute, marry within the Jewish family? Probably not, right? No, they didn't. Uh, did they keep the Sabbath? No indication that they ever did. Did they go to synagogue? No, right? You understand what I'm saying? So here you have Daniel, who's hardcore, and here you have Esther and Mordecai, who kind of, it seems like, keep it hidden. Now think about the implications of God's providence in both the cases. Here, 
you go. We'll keep going. Uh, I think I'm on 10. If I'm not on 10, you guys tell me. Esther had not revealed her people or family. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, now the young woman pleased him, verse 9, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance, and that means food, folks. She took the food. That means portions. That doesn't mean money allowance. That means the food that she ate. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the woman. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Fascinating. Daniel would never do that, correct? And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with the oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes, and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of this guy named Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. Look what happens here. She has relations. She would not go into the king unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, when she, the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. He knew. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King whatever Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast. Here's another feast, the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants and proclaimed a holiday in the province and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now I got to read you a quote because you're probably going, what in the world is going on here? Listen to this by Warren Wearsby. He sums it up perfectly. I can't do it any better, so I just thought I'd read it. Listen to this. This story here doesn't mean that God forced King Xerxes to accept the plan or that God approved of the king's harems or of his sensual abuse of women. It simply means that without being the author of their sin, God so directed the people in this situation that decisions were made that accomplished God's purposes. Wow. If you want that quote, I'll give it to you. Well, keep going. The decisions made today in the high places of government and finance seem remote from everyday lives of, our, of God's people, but they affect us in God's work in many ways. It's good to know that God is on his throne and that no decision is made that can thwart his processes. Quote, he does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. And the final thing he says is this. Listen to this one. Charles Spurgeon said, there's no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. While we confess that many things involved in this doctrine are mysterious, it's unthinkable that Almighty God should not be the master of his own universe, even in the affairs of a pagan empire, God is in control. 
See, here's what I want you to know. I hear God is in control all the time, but I wonder if we understand it. And I think Esther shows us all these weird things that have happened over the last year. And we say, oh yeah, God's on the throne. Well, what does that mean? God is taking the decisions of our leaders and those leaders and these leaders and these people and those people, whether it's Daniel-like or the first part of the book of Esther-like, because I don't want to be too critical of them, and he's using them for his purposes, and it's going to happen. And we just did the book of Revelation, folks. That is going to take place. That's what you can hang your hat on. Okay, when you go back to 19, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Listen, Mordecai had become important. Maybe uh, as Esther had found favor, he got him a new job because the gate was the place where business and economics and law happened at the, at the gate of the city. In other words, Mordecai becomes elevated in his position. Here he is, he's sitting at the king's gate. And Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. Can you imagine? This Jewish man now gets elevated to an important position at the gate because his cousin, who he took in all those years ago, these aren't coincidences, finds favor in the sight, and God uses those without endorsing the sin. Amazing. So in those days, 21, Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, oh, just a coincidence, right? Become furious and seek to lay hands on this king. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Esther, and Esther informed the king, Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Why? To secure freedom. Now here, here's where your mind's going to be blown. At least mine is. Of course, well, anyway. And verse 23, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on a gallows. That actually means that this, these people were impaled. That's how the, the Persians killed people back then. By the way, there is some uh, indication that the Assyrians might have first thought of crucifixion, but the Persians are the ones who brought it to prominence after uh, impalement or impaling people. They impaled people, but they advanced in their torture, so to speak, to crosses or crucifixion. And they made it sort of popular. And guess who perfected it? Romans, if you can say perfected. And that leads to Jesus. But anyway, they were hanged on the gallows. And this is an important providential statement. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. But what didn't happen, interesting, Mordecai doesn't get any pats on the back, doesn't get any promotion, doesn't get a reward, nothing. Now think about us. We do something, the Lord, you know the Lord's in it, you, you've done this good thing, and you're waiting for your reward, and nothing comes. You see, but this is an important part of the story. It's written down in the book of Chronicles, God never forgets the things that you do. And here in a one or two chapters, it's going to come to fruition that that is in there. And again, God's going to move in those ways. Well, keep with me here as we close. After these things, Xerxes promoted Haman, this evil guy. And this you need to know. I wanted to get to this tonight. I want you to think about this this week and study this. 
He's an Agagite. He's an Agagite. Uh, and uh, these people, the, this, this people group, as the Jews were coming out of Egypt, they were in the Exodus, these, these people, the Amalekites, started doing something really dastardly. They were picking off the sick and the weak who were lagging behind, and God never forgot it. In fact, in Deuteronomy, he told them that he would wipe them off the face of the earth. And so he chose, listen, here's where it comes full circle. I know it's long, but you got to know this. So he chose King Saul, a Benjamite to perform the execution. And he said, I want you to go over there where the Amalekites are, and I want you to wipe them out, everybody. I want everything gone, including the livestock, everything. You know the story. That's in 1 Samuel 15. And, and you, you remember, right? He comes back, and he spared, right, the king, and he spared some sheep. And Samuel's like, what's, I thought you were told to knock everybody out, and he could hear the, the sounds of the sheep. Remember that? Well, I don't know if you know this, but when uh, King Saul was killed, you know, there's kind of a couple of accounts in there, one that he fell on his sword. Another account, though, uh, right after, is that an Amalekite put a sword through him. So the picture is clear. The Amalekites are always a picture of the flesh. They war against the spirit. And the Lord tells us to crucify the flesh, the things of the flesh, get rid of them. Like, for instance, I always bring this up and it makes people uncomfortable, but oh well. If your phone is leading you to look at bad things, take the phone like Kirk Cameron and crush it and put it in the, in the, in the trash. But here's what everybody says. Yeah, I know, but I, I got to use it for work. Yeah, right. And that's what this is telling us. Here comes King Ahasuerus, or the Xerxes, he, he appoints Haman, the son of Hamadathia, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes. Here you go. And all the king's servants were within the gates, bowed and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai wouldn't bow. Now listen, it wasn't inappropriate for Jews to bow. There were some other places in the scripture, like Abraham. He would bow. It didn't seem like it's a, any uh, a violation of any commandment. Why wouldn't Mordecai bow? Because he was an Amalekite. And Mordecai was a Benjamite. You see? And there was this tension all since that time when his ancestor was called to do the execution and he didn't do it right. And God was upset with it. And I think that's what's going on here. Here, Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. So when Haman, verse 5, saw that Mordecai didn't bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, isn't that convenient, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And that leads you right to this. You know this. Listen, folks. We don't wage against flesh and blood, but we battle against the principalities of darkness. And hear this evil Haman sets himself up. He gets mad with one Jewish person, and he wants to wipe out the whole lot, the whole, all of them in the country, sick and demonic. And this has been the, 
the story of the Jews. You know this. As we've come into this century, and obviously the horrific things that happened in World War II and beyond, it's evil and it's demonic. Well, in verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, they cast pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. You know this, right? They still celebrate Purim. These just mean casting lots. And they do that still to this day. And do you know this? During the Feast of Purim in synagogue, they read this story. They read this. And every time they get to the name Haman, everybody in the synagogue goes like that, like they're stamping out Haman. They dress up. They kind of, it's like, kind of like, you know, Halloween in America. They dress up like these characters. I, my friends in Israel were posting it on Facebook. Well, Purim, it just happened a few weeks ago. Then verse 8, Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the province of your kingdom. Their laws are different and they don't keep the king's law. By the way, he doesn't even mention who these people are. What a weak, uninformed leader. He doesn't even take the time to find out who these people are. He's like, really? Is that true? If it pleases the king, verse 9, let a decree be written that they pay, uh, be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver. Now, that's a massive amount of money. That's billions and billions of dollars. And see, he needed it now because he just got back from the war in which he got crushed. And he was afraid of losing the kingdom. So the king took his signet ring. That's so foolish. That's like me giving you my PIN number. Well, you couldn't get anything out of there anyway, but you know what I'm saying. It's like Bill Gates giving you your PIN number or your checkbook or whatever. This is the authority, giving the signet ring to give to Haman, the son of Hamadatha or whatever, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to him, the money and the people are given to you to do, this seem, uh, to do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, Note that, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors over the province, to the officials, to every uh, province according to his script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Xerxes, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's province to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month. You want to see more providence? the lots were cast and they landed on one year before that happened. If you read it, it gave them just under one year to prepare for the annihilation. Do you know that in the Proverbs it says that even lots are determined by the Lord, even the dice are determined by the Lord? The Lord is providential, folks. He gives them a year which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. And a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every providence or province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Now, one thing, and we're done. You know what? Do you see how quickly they got out the message of the proclamation of the annihilation? This evil, it reminds me of the unjust steward in Luke. We just studied it. And God gives, or Jesus gives commendation to the unjust steward because he was, why can't, he was basically saying, hey, hey church, I want you to be as wise 
as this guy was wise. I'm not endorsing what he does, but be shrewd and wise in getting out the gospel. Folks, one of the things you can do with Esther is compare the kingdom of God with the horrible kingdom of Persia. They had these amazing vehicles of getting out their message. And that's a word for us. Why can't we get the message out just as fast? Especially given this, that Jesus Christ could come at any second. Why aren't we more concerned? We're concerned with our studies and our hobbies and our, and those are all things that we do in our work and our thing. And the Lord's going to come back. And when he comes back again, he's coming in judgment. And until that time, he's asked us to share with as many as we can share with and disciple as many as we can disciple. Let's have an urgency. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much. (laughs) Oh, boy. What amazing book, Lord, of your providence. Help us to see it, but help us to believe it. And Lord, as we go forward tomorrow and the next day and this week, may we have an urgency about us, Lord, that you give by your spirit so that we can love a hurting and lost world. By your grace and direction, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.